you want to be organized, you want to be structured, you want to have everything predictable ahead of time, you want to like be very intentional about everything. But it's like, let me tell you, like, like half the biggest decisions that happen in companies happen because of random conversations that happen that they weren't expecting. And that's literally how the world works. People want companies to just be this like perfect thing that's like fully planned and figured out. Hello, and welcome to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is the podcast that helps entrepreneurs succeed wherever you are in your journey. I loved my conversation with my guest today, Larry Gadea, because on paper, it was about COVID and the workplace, which sounds boring. We've heard enough of that. But this was different because of what Larry does. We'll talk about that in a sec, but he has a uniquely privileged position, which means his view counts for more. I found what he said about the future of how we're all going to work much more credible and surprising than most of the dross that you'll hear from commentators. The reason Larry is a domain expert on this topic is he's the founder and CEO of Envoy, a workplace management tool that handles everything from visitors arriving at your office to booking meeting rooms. Envoy was helping 16,000 workplaces before the pandemic hit and all offices closed, which was terrifying for Larry. How did he cope knowing his business had a genuine iceberg? You'll find out soon, but first you need to understand who Larry is and where he came from, which was Romania in the late 80s under the fading shadow of Nicolae Ceausescu's brutal rule. So I was born in Romania, um, and that's that's where me and my brother were born, my parents too. And this was like uh, late 80s, and basically my uh, there's like this whole like communist government thing, this whole dictator, I don't even know what was going on there. But basically, we had to get out. So I actually ended up being smuggled out of Romania at a pretty young age to basically we were trying to find a better place, and my parents wanted a, a better life for us, all that kind of goodness that any parent would. So we ended up in Germany for, it was like maybe like a year or something like that. And we were trying to figure out what was the end thing. Were we going to do Canada? Were we going to do like the US? Were we going to go to Australia? All sorts of different options that we had. So so actually before that, like my parents were literally, my mom was cleaning uh, houses like under the table. My dad was picking berries, also uh, just paid under the table because we can like get proper visas and all that. And it was like this whole period of, of our lives where it's like we were trying to get out of this, this crazy government in, in Romania at the time and then move on to a place that's different and, and bigger and, and like the live that dream. These are, by the way, educated people that had, uh, my mom had a master's and it was like biology. My dad was in telecom and did all, just all sorts of different engineering things. And we finally found a way. My dad was a COBOL programmer as well. And it turns out in the early 90s, much like actually today, COBOL programmers are highly in demand. So uh, he found a job with the Canadian government. He was there for, I think it was like a couple month period. And we basically ended up going there and actually getting visas, actually getting everything together and, and being legit in Canada. And that's that's when people ask, where where did you grow up? I say Canada minus the, the long story, but it's uh, it's always kind of interesting kind of how it got to that. And uh, and then from there, I grew up in all that and then eventually ended up in uh, in the U.S. Uh, after a while of uh, just schooling and all that goodness. What do you feel like you are? Oh, that's a good question. I feel, oh, man. Uh, well, now I'm American because, like, I got all that piece uh, together. I have, like, I think I hold, like, three passports or something now. But, like, I would say, yeah, no. Right now, it's like I was... Canadian because a lot of people say that I apologize a lot for a lot of different things. And uh, and then I'll be, of course, uh, American because I, I live here now and, and that's what I do. <laughs> but yeah, I still visit Canada all the time. My parents are still there. 
Right, okay, fair enough. Uh, like, how do you say your family adapted to Canadian life? Like, can you remember? I mean, here's the thing, right? It's these folks that decided, like, they were very hard workers in Romania. They left there. They went to Germany. They had to be hard workers there again. There was no entitlement to be had at all. Like, you had to re-earn everything from zero. And I would say that that just the family values of just working really hard, doing your best and like doing whatever you can is the thing that they live by and stand by. And even to date, it's still the same thing. Like, I mean, they're supposed to be retired right now, but like they're still working for whatever reason. And and it's like I keep telling them, hey, you should maybe consider like, you know, the whole thing that people look forward to after all these years of work. Like maybe they should do the thing. And uh, so now they're now they're, I think, actually considering at least taking a vacation. So we'll find out what happens there. So let's talk about putting in the hard work. Why don't you uh, let us know how you uh, had your first foray into the business world? What was your first venture? Yeah, I mean, so this is the first venture, the first and and biggest and possibly it's going to become the only just because it's big. And it's like, I think that we have such opportunity in, in what we're building. Well, hold on, let me stop you there, because uh, your your memory is clearly not as good as my research, because if I'm not mistaken, uh, a 12 year old Larry uh, built the biggest Pokemon Pikachu pictures website in the world, <laughs> right. did he not? I can't believe you're going to skip over some some decent uh, decent stories over here. You started when you were twelve hacking together stuff. Yeah, I guess I guess we can uh, we can bring back the trauma. So <laughs> so, yeah, when I was twelve, uh, me and my brother we uh, so Pokemon, uh, which is a big deal even today, oddly enough, was a really big deal back in the late nineties as well. What ended up happening is I started what turned out to be the world's biggest Pikachu pictures website at pikapix.com. It's still online today. And it's the most ridiculous thing, but it's like, hey, you know what? I, I happen to have enjoyed Pokemon and specifically uh, Pikachu. Though, oddly enough, if you look on the website, it actually says my favorite Pokemon is a Charmander. Call it opportunism or call it just like general interest of the entire trend. It was fun to build something, a, a website where people submitted things. They were pretending to be Pikachu and like recorded themselves and, and submitted it to the website. And they wrote poems and drew pictures. And it was a little wild I don't even know if that can happen these days but it's like it was really fun and I was really young like we did we didn't even have internet at home I had to go to the public library to upload the things and there was only one person at the public library that actually knew about this like internet thing and how to get things online it was a fast way of learning everything at a very young age but it's kind of uh, I think that I think that kids enjoy that kind of stuff so it's uh yeah I don't know I, I definitely enjoyed making it that's for sure and then speaking of like starting young, then you went to work at Google age 17, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, the Google uh, one is a little bit more legitimate, although like it also has its kind of history in an interesting place. So some people think that Pikachu is more, more legitimate than Google, to be fair. This is true. This is true. And, and Google was very different at the time, too. This was 2005, by the way. So it was a while. Actually, after the Pikachu empire uh, from 1999 to uh, 2000, it, it, like six years later, I ended up actually getting some legitimate experience, I guess. I, I ended up getting this job at Google. This was while I was still in high school. And the way it happened, I'd always been into like, because I was really into the computer, obviously I figured out how to like upload to weird servers and get a whole website online when, when people didn't even know the internet existed. 
what happened is I learned a lot about how computers work, a lot about how different systems work. And and I had a lot of time as, as a kid and as a teenager, you do have some time. Now, while others would be doing whatever it is teenagers do these days, um, I was basically on my computer. I was doing what was, what essentially could be described as like game copy protection cracking, which is like a super sophisticated way of like, you take an executable, you make it so anybody can use it. So it, I wanted to play like, what was it? Like a Warcraft 3 or I think, yeah, it was around that time. And anyways, people wanted to play as well. None of us could afford it. So basically what we did is we took these copies and then we made it a server to make it work for all of us. That was like the experience. And I learned just a ton about how machines work, how computers work, how they execute different code. And then in Google, 2004, I think it was, Google launched this thing called Google Desktop Search. It was this thing where you could basically search the internet or you could search a computer much like you would the internet. So if you're looking for like, I don't know, a book report on whatever, because that's what kids like, they like book reports, you basically would search for something and it would show the things on your own computer and then it would also show the internet results. The problem is for, for Google Desktop Search to be able to search the files on your own computer, that's a different kind of problem. And, and it only worked with Microsoft Word files Yet in Canada, and specifically in Ottawa, WordPerfect is a thing. What ended up happening is I was kind of like, well, I want to use this fancy new Google thing, but I can't because I have to use Microsoft Word, and I think we couldn't afford Microsoft Word, so we had to use the like fly-by-night uh, WordPerfect. It's like, oh, geez, how do we get this to work? So I basically reverse engineered the Google Desktop search executables, made them be able to also do WordPerfect, and then I put it online for everyone because uh, what's an uh, egomaniac at their, what is it, 16, 17 years old? What did they, uh, what do they like? They like attention. What happened is all these lawyers in the US, it turns out that they actually had to do by law, they had to um, type up the transcripts in US cases, like in, in court cases, they had to type it in WordPerfect because that was like, I don't know, the government chosen software. So it blew up overnight. My, my like hack of Google desktop search blew up overnight because of this weird use case of, of lawyers in uh, court cases. And it got obviously the attention of Google. Now I was terrified because it's like, oh no, this is the, what my parents keep telling me not to do. And like, now I'm gonna be in really big trouble. And so I get a phone call from somebody at Google and it's like, hey, why are you doing this? Please just join us and do it here legitimately. That's basically what led to conversations that was like with recruiters. I had a whole bunch of interviews and then they're like, when can you get started? And I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to leave the country yet. Like I have to like get visas and stuff, don't I? And, and it's like, I'm 17 and like, do you need a university degree? Because that may be a problem. So then they realized it was like that big moment where it's like, oh no, like what have we done? We did not ask the qualifying questions. This is why we don't skip our processes. But basically they were like, oh no, um, this guy is not who we thought he was. And, and then we had to go through a different process around like, it's like a training visa for like a temporary amount of time. But in the end, after these interviews and after everything, I ended up getting an offer to join them. Uh, I joined them. It was in Mountain View. It was amazing. I was one of the youngest kids there. There was actually more kids running around that were of that age. I could not believe it. 
but uh, yeah, that was really, really fun. And, uh, and then we just extended it from there onwards to until 2009. So four years, even actually technically before I graduated from uh, college. So that was, that was nice. Also terrifying, but it was fun. So here's the thing. It's like um, I had gone while I was at Google, I was also at in school at the same time. So it's kind of like this like 40 hour week doing school stuff, another 40 hour doing like work. And when I graduated uh, school, this was 2009, I was kind of like, okay, cool. I guess I have some good work experience, but it's also like, okay, I'm kind of like over maybe the bigger company thing. Like it was interesting. I learned a ton and Google best company in the world in my view. However, it's like, I want to try something different. I've always wanted to start a company. I'd always wanted to do something. You, you want the ultimate challenge, start a company. Basically every day is, is a wild day. Twitter at the time was growing a lot. Uh, Silicon Valley was also very interesting. It was this place where people went who were very idealistic about wanting to change the world, about building things. I don't think it was as kind of uh, money uh, driven as most places in, in the country. Um, these days it might be a little different, but like I still feel that Silicon Valley is the place that uh, people who are more idealistic about building things and changing the world would go to. So this is why I ended up here. And and I knew it. I knew it with like 100% certainty. I didn't even look at any other cities, any other places. I was like, yeah, I wanted to be in Silicon Valley and I wanted to be at a startup where everything's going to be crazy. Now, at the time, I didn't know what crazy was. I just knew it's like small, it's going to grow. I'm going to get stock options. Hey, who knows what? Maybe maybe I'll make some money so I can start something. Yeah. And then while I was at, at Twitter, it was very interesting. It was very like there's no processes for anything. We had to figure it out. Like there isn't some like top down people that are going to solve all the problems. Like the definition of a startup is it's basically a mess and it is your job along with everybody around you. It is all your jobs to like figure out how to fix it and make it not explode. It's basically, we figured it out and like it, it took a lot. There was a lot of, basically every night was sleepless. Every night was like 3 a.m. phone calls from PagerDuty because our whatever was down and I was on, uh, I was an engineer on the systems team that, that built a lot of the scalability stuff. The people around me knew most of the things. Um, I, I was learning a lot. It was really real. Like everybody there was super critical. There was nobody like you removed anybody there and, and there'd be downtime, there'd be all sorts of problems. And I really like that. I like an environment that everyone's super critical. That's also an environment where all those people lose any kind of like personal life because it's just everyone's so important. What ended up happening is, yeah, it was a great company. It grew a lot while I was there, just a lot. And, and you just see every problem imaginable happen but you learn a ton. And, and if you have a good attitude around it, if you have a good like view as to like, cool, this is actually all normal. If you believe that, it makes it so much easier and so much more fun. And uh, by the end of it, I was just like, oh my God, I'm just super excited right now. I wanna really start something. And I had a lot of ideas about things, uh, just given like the contrast between Google and Twitter and like just the different experience that I had. And uh, yeah, I ended up leaving, uh, taking a little bit of time off and then uh, starting Envoy, which I'm still at today. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanter. Just head to vanter.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So let's talk about Envoy then. So what is the company? And I think more importantly, like why did you start it and what was it meant to be? And how has it been for you to try and keep track of that vision throughout one of the greatest changes of how people live over the last couple of years throughout the pandemic? Yeah, especially for a company like ours, which is like just focused on on the workplace and all that, like it made some pretty big changes. I mean, here's the thing. Uh, Envoy acknowledges the difference in, in companies that, that have a lot of resources to build really great things for their own people internally versus what every other company in the world is kind of stuck with in operating a, an employee base or just like a workplace. So what happens is in these companies in Silicon Valley, where you have a lot of ambitious people in, an, in one area, they kind of like play off each other to create new tooling to help themselves in whatever way. So at Google, we had uh, the thousands of engineers, even when I was there. And what would happen is people would be kind of upset that like, oh, like this person's lost or like when is the what, what's on the menu for the food place or, or what's the shuttle schedule that can get me to like the city, these kinds of problems. So normally companies would just have like a piece of paper, they'd send out an email, that kind of thing with these. But at Google, they always wanted to rebuild things in, in a new way that's ideally innovative and, and exciting. And it didn't have to be for the world. It didn't have to be a product that was like they would sell or something. It would just be something that they built because it's, it's great and useful. So at Google, what I noticed is that they were building an awful lot of internal tools that were very much not specific to Google, but it was like they just ended up building it because nothing else was there. And I noticed that a lot of these people, and it was from random teams too, they built tooling around visitors coming in and making sure like uh, they're welcomed and it can ping people automatically. They built tools around figuring out where are the free meeting rooms and, and where are uh, people hanging out today, which cafes are popular. And it's just like, you could plan things with them too. You can unlock the scooters. And it was all built on this kind of, this concept of like, well, there's nothing else really out there. So we built something for ourselves and, and it's useful. 
at the same time, because I was at Google, I, I made a lot of friends. This was um, in the South Bay as well. So I made a lot of friends with people that were in different companies that were also major. So like Apple and, and later on in Facebook, I noticed that they had built all the same tooling. They didn't go out there and buy something. They didn't buy like a, a meeting room management thing. They didn't buy something to like give a list of, of what's going on, a company announcements. There was no software that was reputable or good or, or like to any kind of standards that, that Google, Facebook, Apple would, would want. So all these companies kept on rebuilding the same things over and over again. And that concept really struck me that it was so weird um, that these companies are all building the same thing. Why, why doesn't somebody just do it? And then when I went to Twitter, it was exactly the same thing. Like Twitter had nothing in terms of internal tooling for their workplace. So they basically ended up not having anything. And then I noticed that they're starting to build. They wanted, I forget what we called it. It was like the tweet kiosk or something. At the front desk, people could could like sign into this kiosk and it would take a picture of them with like Twitter in the background and they could post it on their Twitter account. So it was like a fun thing. But I'm like, this looks an awful lot like what Google built for just pinging employees that their visitors arrived. And then I started noticing more and more tooling that was being built. And I was like, this is crazy. Another company that's doing this on their own, why doesn't this exist for others? In the end, when I ended up leaving Twitter, it was very obvious that the thing I really wanted to build is the thing that all these companies have basically already proven are critical enough that every company ends up building it themselves, which is just tooling around the workplace and making it a much more thoughtful, much more a proactive and great experience place to be. So that was the concept. We, we started in 2013. It's a great idea for 2013, right? Yeah, there was nothing around too. It's like, I knew I wanted to do it on iPad because iPads were commonly available. We we wanted, so we started with the visitors product and the visitors product is one that's every company in the world has visitors going into their buildings. Maybe they're contractors, maybe they're vendors, maybe it's a sales pitch. Maybe they're just there for the free food if you're in Silicon Valley. But the concept is that every company has these people coming in. And then it was just all these other problems too around meeting rooms, around desking, around. And we started with the visitors product because it had a very good growth pattern. People would get it because they saw it somewhere else. They kind of had to use it and like to like say hello to whoever they're there to see. But then they were like, this is kind of useful. This is good. This, I, this doesn't, this isn't terrible. And it is that motion that has gotten us into something 15, 16,000 workplaces worldwide uh, used on a daily basis because uh, the people remembered it and they kind of liked it and then it grew from there. That's how it grew and that's how we got ourselves to really good things. We ended up raising like, we did a seed round, we did uh, a series A, uh, we even did a series B, uh, raised tens of millions of, of dollars and in a company that actually produced revenue and stuff too. So this was all just really great acknowledgement we're doing the right things. And then in comes the global pandemic. We are a company that sells products to physical workplaces. The same physical workplaces that there are municipal like laws basically saying nobody can go to your office, everybody must stay at home because it's a global pandemic and you're all gonna hurt yourselves if you go in an office. So here we are kind of with our products almost exclusively building uh, for these workplaces that, that are like, you can't go in. And what happened is at first it was a little bit crazy. It was very scary. Like, what do you do? Like, you're, you're kind of like, okay, well, this is going to be over soon. Like, well, let's just keep building the thing. But it turned into a point where it's like, huh, this is not going to be over. And people think it's going to be over. They keep saying, oh, yeah, in two months we'll all be back. 
And I'm kind of like, why would we be back in two months? Like, I don't understand how the pandemic is going to suddenly go away when it's only rising and it only is getting worse. And it's also like fundamentally because of a way a virus spreads, we're not going to be back in two months. We're going to be back in like two years at best. And it's uh, it's actually only was a year and a half in the end. But um, it's kind of it was nuts because it's it's there was no exit out of it outside of a vaccine. So it was clear we had to do something during the pandemic and it we had to change things dramatically. At the same time, we had customers that came to us and they were like, hey, listen, we got some people that like are like two or three people to a bedroom in their homes and they can't do the Zoom call from like, if there's so many people in, in one room, they also have bad internet. There's also construction right outside their home. This is not a good situation for all of our people. Uh, most of them could work from home, the, the, especially like the tech kind of focused ones, but the ones that couldn't, they still needed to get into the office. And municipalities did allow people to go back, but very, very few. And it was employees. It was like 5% of your employee base could be there. So that's when the whole new kind of major pivot of our company started, where it was all about kind of, it was taking our visitor's product, pivoting it into a employee safety product, which is called Envoy Protect. And Envoy Protect still exists today, but it's all about like, how do you get surveys done to make sure people aren't like uh, sick or like haven't been near someone that's sick? How do you, if they pass that, unlock their badge so they can actually come into the office? And then it's about capacity management, like making sure there's not too many people in an office, because if there are, then you're A, violating the law, or B, you're gonna like hurt people in there. And then it started going into desking. Well, you uh, you want to get people in and they need desks, they need places to work, but they need to be far away from each other because you don't want them to infect each other. And just like thing after thing kept coming up around like contact tracing and all these different things you would read about. Like we were just jumping on every single one of them because our customers were in the middle of it. We had some, it was, it was thousands of customers all in the middle of it and they were all needing some kind of re-entrance back into their office. So that's what we basically did. We just built product after product and like thing after thing to do this. And, and let me tell you, learning from a customer base, from thousands of customers, literally all at once, that is the most like crazy to coordinate uh, experience of my life. And of course, the teams here are the ones that really dug into every single one and really just went above and beyond to figure it all out. Definitely not easy. But uh, we pulled it off and like it really worked and like companies really built more trust with us. They knew that if they needed a partner throughout this crazy time, they could come to us and we will continuously build things. And really all that it did was accelerate our whole view. We wanted to build an office OS. We wanted to build a workplace platform for the thoughtful workplace. And this is what we were forced to do. And then now these products that like desking, for example, which was all about keeping people away from each other. Now it's about hot desking and keeping people together and actually intentionally scheduling them on certain days with hybrid work. Now it's all about bringing people in on certain days and sitting next to each other and collaborating together. And it's like kind of reusing a product we built at the beginning of the pandemic now in a way that's more about the future of work and flexibility and, and coordination. And we built mapping and you could see now, you know, everybody around you and, and you know, their interests and, you know, kind of, you can build community with that. 
them again. And that's where like we're really focusing our company as as things keep evolving from kind of this safety only world to safety plus hybrid work and like the future of work. The way we see it is like it's similar products, but now tuned in a way that's much more about flexibility and much more people working from anywhere and, and getting work done that way. And it goes back to the visitor's product, of course, now it's picking up again, people are returning back. And it's very interesting. We definitely could not have predicted things would have gone this way. But if people are not super fixed on like, no, I just want to do the same thing, like my entire job and that kind of thing, you are set to go for just growing things and, and adapting. And it is excruciatingly hard to do and, and especially to lead in this kind of environment where there are no answers and it is very easy for anyone to pick on anything if they wanted to but it's like you have to just all be unified and go 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 towards this common purpose so let's talk then about culture so in the heat of the moment with the pandemic unfolding say i guess around march time it would have been 2020 talk to me a little bit about how you change your entire business um, because you have to, like, how does that work? Okay, so just to put things in, in context, so we are about 140 people, 150 people in the company, um, and then March hit, and then all this, all these people got locked down. It was not easy. At, well, okay, so at first it was like, oh, this is fun. Like, I don't know. Okay, cool. We're all, I guess, working from home. We already had, like, Zoom accounts and stuff. We already had Slack. We already had all these products that, like, because, like, hybrid work of today is really just, like, work from home as it was before the pandemic. And it's kind of like you still want people to see each other and work with each other. Maybe now it's, like, a little bit less often that they see each other. But the concept that that we have collaboration and, and online collaboration is it was there from the get-go. So we weren't super concerned at first. There's also a lot of cities and stuff in the world that hadn't really been impacted by COVID and were still operational. A lot of our companies were also very optimistic that everything's going to be back and like, don't worry about it in one, two, three months. So it wasn't that bad at, at first. So this was the first like month. It was fine. But um, and again, uh, the governments and stuff did a reasonable job in kind of keeping people stable in that they're like, oh, no, 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 don't worry. In two months, we'll all be back. In three months, we'll all be back. We'll all be back in September, along with us opening the schools. And like, so I, I think that like just generally governments did a good job in, in not panicking and not allowing people to panic. And that helped us and a lot of other businesses. The problem is that after a while of being told one thing and not seeing it, people catch on. And what happened is like, it was like, okay, this is not gonna end anytime soon. And there is no like long-term scalable answer here outside of basically martial law, which is what, what ended up happening, I think in like some parts of China where no one's allowed to leave their homes and they like weld doors shut to like not let people out. That's the only way to solve it because then it just dies off. But then you had uh, a vaccine was the next big thing, but that would not happen for a really long time. So we knew this was gonna be a while. That moment was the scary part where everyone internally, you're kind of right. It's like they were kind of like, hey, like we have to do something and like we're going to lose jobs otherwise. And like we're literally going to lose our company otherwise. So people understood that we have a strong like culture of people just understanding that we are building a business. This is about all of us as owners together building something new and exciting and, and different and risky. I don't think it was obvious the exact things we needed to do, but just being so customer focused as a company, it did help us because a lot of customers asked for things that were very practical. And they were like, listen, we don't know what we want as the big thing, but can you at least help us do a survey to our employees as they come in that, um, that they need, that they don't have COVID and that they haven't been near someone that has had COVID. 
And it was that customer kind of feedback and like feature requests essentially that got us in this mindset of like, huh, there's actually a lot of these little things. They wanted temperature scanning. They wanted to count how many people were in there. They wanted a map so that they could put people in certain areas, but not others. And that was really motivating for the team here because some people could really notice the pattern. They noticed a pattern of like, huh, these are all very like safety related. They're also very similar to our offerings before where it's like you would ask a visitor questions before they arrive, um, except now you ask an employee questions before they arrive. So people were pretty motivated. They, they understood that we had to pivot. They understood that we could do it. The functionality was not a totally different from other things we'd done before. We did have some problems around, um, do we invest too much in the new stuff and not the, the previous things? So one of the big things is like our, our visitors product had a lot of feature requests and a lot of different ways we wanted to move it. It had great, big, ambitious plans, but um, we were stopping all of those and we were moving the people on those teams away from those and onto the new problems. Whenever you start doing that kind of thing, that's when people start really getting weird about stuff because they had roadmaps, they had plans. There's a bunch of people that were building infrastructure for that future. And now they're like, hey, by the way, you have to do this completely new thing. We don't exactly know what it is. There is no plan that's very obvious, but like, it's okay, trust us. And you're not actually trusting that we have the answers, but you're trusting that this is the right thing to do if we all unify. And I think that that's really where our culture really, really helped us a lot because people were kind of, they're kind of used to just like, we need to build and like, we need to figure out the things and, and listening to our customers is the right thing to do. And that's basically how we got started. And then we started getting theories around how it could go to the point where now these days, like, I mean, just a few weeks ago, we launched this uh, vaccine tracking and testing tracking uh, functionality. It's basically because we expect that companies and local governments are, are going to require some kind of vaccine mandate or some kind of uh, testing mandate. And we wanna get ahead of it. So we've built functionality around making that easy and, and not super authoritarian or like uh, privacy preserving and all that kind of stuff. Like we really wanted to make sure that, that people um, get a good experience doing this because it's gonna be a very touchy topic. We had problems and a lot of the problems were just from folks that like really were excited about what we were doing at the time. And they're kind of like, no, it's going to go away and like we should keep doing that. But I think after a little while, it just everyone knew that that the pandemic was here to stay for a long time. And people weren't as excited at the time because then it's kind of like, but they knew they had to. So there was a little bit of like motivation from that. They were happy that we were at the front and center of it. Like they were telling their friends about how literally they're working on COVID related things. Some of these folks really felt like they were part of it all. And, and honestly, they were like we were helping even today. It's like thousands of companies use our software to return to the office. I think most people were very excited. And uh, so that was that was good. Scary nonetheless, though. Let me be clear. <laughs> Yeah, scary nonetheless. So like now you're in this period, obviously you're talking a lot about when we were in the pandemic, it's very clear there's like this change, everything has to change. Now we're kind of in this like actually, you know, people kind of do what the fuck you want. Like some companies are like, well, we're remote forever. Some companies are like, we're all coming to work. Some companies are like hybrid. So I suppose that must provide a lot more leadership challenge in terms of where you focus like now. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we even had, um, so before the pandemic, we had some folks that were remote, like remote engineers. We didn't have too many, but we had some. And some of them were really like, uh, hey, remote is the future. And then when the pandemic came, they were like, look, see, like everyone's going to be remote. Everyone in the world's going to be remote going forward. And it's kind of like, well, I, I see what they're getting at. However, it's just immediately uh, you could tell that remote was going to be a thing, but I don't know if it was going to be the thing forever. But uh, we were very opinionated that the workplace was still going to be a thing in the future. And even now, I even I've told the company multiple times that like, if the world turns into a world that is literally only for remote work and remote work exclusively, commercial real estate's going away forever. If the world turns into that, I expect us to crash and burn, everybody to lose all their money, and me included, everyone losing all their jobs. That's what I would expect. Now, that is not what's going to happen, just given just the relentlessness companies have to return back and that culture building aspect that is so hard to measure, but that is the driving force for why people want to have workplaces. All these companies were saying like, yeah, we're going to be remote first or like remote only. A lot of those companies are going back on it. A lot of those companies are growing in different ways that are office based. Maybe they're not HQ based. Maybe they're not five days a week mandated to go into the office. Um, but a lot of times these companies weren't even five days a week mandated before. As a reminder, the whole work from home concept, at least in Silicon Valley, was alive and well. And this concept of of being having the choice to kind of go in on certain days and not others are things that people negotiated and had happen anyways. But it's just the, the amount of random things that happen when you just bump into someone accidentally, the amount of like decision making and importance of the random hallway conversations is just incredible how much that happens. Companies won't really admit to it because companies feel like you want to be organized, you want to be structured, you want to have everything predictable ahead of time, you want to like be very intentional about everything. But it's like, let me tell you, like, like half of the biggest decisions that happen in companies happen um, because of random conversations that happen that they weren't expecting. And that's literally how the world works. People want companies to just be this like perfect thing that's like fully planned and figured out. And they don't really realize that it's very much like their own life at home where things are like kind of randomly happening. You're like trying to, it's like, what do you mean? There's a water leak now. Like when can we get the person in? And you're, you're trying to be organized about that, but that person's only available in like three weeks and, but it's leaking now. And it's like, this is very much how businesses go. And like, you're trying your best to like uh, organize it and you do get better at it over time. You get the water leak fixed and you get like the, the electricity to be okay. And, and it's good until the next major water leak slash, uh, like, I don't know why the power doesn't work today. I don't know why uh, this uh, floor panel broke. And I think companies are a little shy to admit that so much business is done uh, spontaneously and it's just how it goes. So listening to this interview, it's easy to think, okay, this guy's kind of hit it out the blocks with technically his first swing. What's the biggest mistake that you've made along in your journey? Like what, what are some of the negatives? What are some of the more humane, fuck it, I'm not perfect, and this stuff went really badly? What are those stories? 
Oh boy. Um, it's just unlimited. I mean, it's always easy to talk about the successes and all that. Um, it's, uh, it's always like a little bit of PTSD thinking about all the bad things. It's just like knock it out of the park. Like we will see, we will see on this knock it out of the park. I appreciate the, the sentiment, but like, we will see it's not over till it's over. And it's like, we still have a lot to prove. We still have a lot to work on. We still have a lot to build. Like this isn't, we're done by no stretch and, and the risk is never going to be gone. Um, we're also going to keep introducing more risk for what it's just because that's more fun but it's there's something about like uh yeah it should be interesting okay bad stuff i think it's just there's a lot of things that don't go right like i mean one thing that really it was not great during the pandemic is you're you're kind of trying to hire still in this environment where you're getting more business but like you don't have people that are like it's really hard to pitch your company like even today when i talk to some people they're like envoy oh yeah aren't you guys like the visitor thing are you guys like bankrupt now are you starting something new and i'm like no no we're not and and also no we're still on the <laughs> where same did you thing. hear that I, literally yesterday probably and then the day before and then the day before that this is yeah it's just like guys we're like where who told you like I, I want names and i want the history of people that it's literally like that like i think most people don't think that companies can evolve and change and for what it's worth most companies can't evolve and change most companies structure themselves in a way that doesn't allow uh, evolution and change because of the inherent desire to keep things stable it's always a balance that way. I mean, even today, I still get those comments. And um, it's a little annoying because I just know the truth that it's like, it's, it's growing. It's doing great. Like we have our problems. And there's a lot of coordination and, and internal things that we always have to figure out. But battling that has definitely been difficult. But um, people are going to go back to their workplaces because businesses are going to realize that their competitors who are who are much better unified, who are building community inside of their workplaces, those people are having a lot more fun. And uh, we're seeing our hiring picking up as well. Now it could be because of the business success or whatever, but uh, I think some people are just really getting sick of the Zoom thing and they want to try something different. Um, so it's that's been interesting to be a company building for workplaces where uh, a whole world is uh, aspirational towards uh, never being around people again <laughs> in like, uh, uh, well, I mean, obviously nobody wants exclusively never around people, but it's, um, I think people don't understand the value they provide in literally just being in a room uh, that they provide for others. It's like, if somebody's down or not feeling great, they show up to work not feeling great. And people see that, managers see that, their peers see that, and they're kind of like, hey, can I help you? Is there something wrong? You're not going to have a, a video call with your manager and like be like, you know what, I'm really just not feeling great today. It's just like, I'm not happy right now. No, they'd rather quit and find another job as a way of saying that than like literally have the hard conversation. And it's like, it's really unfortunate because a lot of these things could be helped and a lot of these people could could be so much more excited, so much happier in their workplace, in, in just like their, their work life. But it's so hard to for people to kind of admit uh, being down or admit being not excited or or ask for help. So we kind of have been relying as managers and as leaders, we've been relying on being able to see our people and the the minuscule little sentiments on their faces and the way they they act and walk and like whatever as signals for problems. Um, those signals are almost all gone. And in, in a world that's only KPI driven, where it's like, hey, did you hit your goal? I don't know why people want that. Like, it's it's just a little like, wow, okay, cool. So I'm one unit of achieving goals. I guess that's good. But like, what happened to personality? What happened to character? What happened to the sense of purpose and being and, and community? Like, where is that? 
that's the huge gross under uh, appreciation that I think everyone's going to uh, eventually pick up. It's just it's going to take some time because when all your friends are at home and talking about how it's great to to be at home, um, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be a little while. But companies are moving towards it. It's fun to be part of the industry that's trying to fix that. Thanks so much, dude. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. Within a week time span, we ended up growing like every single metric 900%. All of our systems were failing. Our desktop app was failing. Our support systems were failing. Our customer support reps were just like completely underwater. You know, really the only way out of that was through. Myself and, and others ended up having to steer a rocket ship as people were working like 16-hour days and burning out. That was Vinay Hayamath, the CTO and co-founder of Loom, a tech startup which helps other companies communicate through video messaging. Valued at $1.5 billion, find out how failure earlier in his career set him up for success today. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, bringing it all together.